Welcome back, everyone, to Around the Room, Season 2. I'm Daniel Ennis. This season, we're going to be trying a few new things, including a new segment called Ask an Expert. This is a segment where we ask you in the rheumatology community to ask some questions, whether you're a resident, a patient, or in practice for decades. As a new rheumatologist, I know I needed help with some of the basics and more advanced mechanics of patient management. Even experienced rheumatologists may still learn a thing or two from the right teacher. So who better to teach us than one of Canada's most eminent rheumatologists, clinician, teacher, researcher, Dr. Janet Pope. Janet, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Oh, and thank you so much. And what a kind introduction, Daniel. And some of it's true. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, so we're going to be talking about things that rheumatologists do every day without thinking twice. But I think there's still plenty to learn about things we think we know well. So let's talk about one of the most basic tools in our treatment arsenal. Let's talk about methotrexate. Um, and I know that you have not just a lot of experience with it, but a lot to say about it. And I want to start us off at kind of like the beginning of using methotrexate. Can we talk just a little bit about how you start, counsel, and titrate methotrexate? Absolutely. So I think, you know, we always say an old drug, can we reinvent it to be more effective? And like anything, like wearing a pair of shoes, not all people wear the same size, right? So with that in mind, my counseling, I think the older I get, the less I counsel on um, side effects and more on timing of benefit and benchmarking. So in general, if I'm going to start a patient on methotrexate, say it's rheumatoid arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, I do stand, tend to start triple therapy. I know a lot of people start mono or combo. That's all good. There's data for all of it. And so usually I will start the dose, which I think is 25 milligrams, unless if you have renal impairment or I am really worried that maybe you have severe fibrosis of the liver. So I will usually start at 25 milligrams. Um, maybe the little person that's uh, 80 years old and uh, frail, and I don't know the creatinine yet, maybe 15, but in general, 25 milligrams. And here would be what I would say. So Mrs. X or Marge or whomever, um, we're going to start methotrexate. In general, we this takes about two to six weeks to kick in. We often might, and I don't say it by bridging, but maybe I'll give an IM or intraarticular steroid injections to get you feeling better. So by the time X runs out, methotrexate should have kicked in. Uh, we usually start at if it's oral or injection. Oral would be pills once a week and pick your day so that my prescription says their day, their day because taking one a day doesn't work well. Been there, done that by accident, patients have. So you want it your Friday night special. Okay, Friday. So you're going to take 10 pills once every Friday at bedtime or supper time, whenever you want to. Folic acid, okay. five milligrams the next day or the injection, 25 milligrams. Here's how you inject. We have that conversation. So this will take two to six weeks weeks to kick in. Most people tolerate it well, and it's our anchor drug. There can be 
risks or benefits. So benefits, of course, or we wouldn't talk about it. So I always sandwich it, benefit, side effects, happiness at the end. So it's a sandwich, just like giving feedback to trainees. They only remember the beginning and the end. They don't remember the middle that they should be listening to. So I say um, we could um, irritate your liver or drop your blood counts. Um, some people are nauseated or get sores in their mouth. And sometimes it's nausea or feeling unwell. That is actually the limiting step. But most people don't get that. So I again, I make it positive. Notice how there's no odds. If it's a teacher or an engineer, they get odds precisely. One in 10 will get enough sores in the mouth over their lifetime that they'll call. One in 100, enough abnormality of a liver enzyme that I'll call them. One in 100 cytopenias, I'll call them. Even though there's lots of baseline rippling around abnormalities. So if they want precision, they get it. Otherwise, it's pretty uh, broad. If it's a young person, I don't say you can't get pregnant on it because you sure can, but you better not. So if it's a young person, I say this is contraindicated in pregnancy. And we talk about that. And, you know, are they using contraception, et cetera, if they're over that age or not, you know, already have had a tubal ligation. We don't have to talk about that. And uh, that we often will give you a phone call in the pre-COVID days at six weeks. That means my nurse, not me, to see how it's going. Or we have a pharmacist as well. And and if not, I'll see you in six to 12 weeks, depending on what's going on with them. And then I would like you to do monthly blood work. So at the beginning, we once do hep B, hep C serology. I do a CBC. I want a noic creatinine once and an ALT. If they have an inflammatory condition like RA, I'm going to follow the CRP. If it's, uh, say, GCA, I'll follow CRP and ESR. And so I do monthly. It's all like whatever now everyone hears is made up. So here's how I make it up. We all make cakes different ways. So basically, I will go um, monthly times three CBC, ALT, and your inflammatory marker, then Q3 monthly thereafter. I do not want to know a baseline chest x-ray if you're not short of breath and if I'm not doing uh, foam medicine, but I'm actually auscultating and I don't hear crackles. I don't do a baseline chest x-ray. It's hard to get right now anyway with COVID. And also, I don't want to pick up that little lung nodule that will do CTs. Q6 monthly for four years. Don't want to do it. But if you want to do a chest x-ray, sure, do it. I do not do albumin. I do not do INR. I do not do bilirubin. A screening, we have to remember, screening isn't like when someone has a fracture, you're not screening for osteoporosis. You're wondering if it's osteoporotic and treating. So I'm not looking for synthetic liver function. That is an abnormality that's not screening. That's like liver problems. So I don't do albumin, elk, phos, or bili because it doesn't make any sense. So screening, ALT. I will tolerate ALT three times the upper limit of normal, but it's really four because over 100, I'll call them and see what's up. Unless if their baseline is already high, autoimmune liver, you know, an overlap with lupus, autoimmune liver or something like that. So I will ride, let the liver enzymes ride. I will do um, a fibro scan in a patient that has um, high BMI, maybe psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, lots of alcohol, um, diabetes, type 2 usually, the metabolic syndrome kind of person. I will do a fibro scan if liver enzymes at baseline are already up. I monitor success by, you know, seeing them back in three months. Have, have, have they improved or not? Or six weeks to check in, phone call if we're uncertain or they're uncertain about the drug and the safety of it. And basically, once it looks like things are going well, I tend not to taper. And you're probably going to ask me about what I do when there's side effects and things. So I'll stop there. 
<laughs> That's right. So I want to hone in on a couple of things that you said there, because you kind of gave your approach to both subcutaneous and oral. And this is a perfect time to take a question from a listener. Hello, this is Mohan Stewart, a rheumatology resident at UBC. Here's my question for Dr. Pope. When prescribing methotrexate, do you typically try to get patients onto subcutaneous first, or do you have no strong preference between subcutaneous and oral? Right. So first of all, for people listening, I'm giving blasphemy, but there really aren't many studies (laughs) saying that the absorption, there is one study of 7.5, 15, and 30 milligrams of methotrexate by Dan First uh, from, uh, you know, some millennia, uh, one millennia ago, a long time ago. And it did show there was a dose response. We know that that was oral. And there are studies in children that above 15 to 20 milligrams, the absorption is far better sub-Q than oral. But everybody that's been in practice for a while has seen people on 25 milligrams orally that they go down because they don't want 10 pills anymore if it's oral. They go down to eight tabs. They go, oh, I think I can do it because I feel like it. And they flare. So there are definitely people that still absorb uh, well enough at 25 milligrams orally once a week. So the blasphemy is that really we do seem to have better retention and possibly better tolerability, not necessarily, but better retention and better change in DOS score in our catch cohort if you're on sub-Q versus oral. But because I do tend an RA, and again, you don't have to, but I tend to go triple therapy because 70% can go in remission on triple at three months and 30% on monomethotrexate of the doses used in trials, which are more like 15 or 17.5 and they're oral. But I tell people too, would you rather have a two to one chance of remission or a one and, you know, one out of two out of three or one out of three? And you know what they say? Well, two out of three, of course. So play your cards, get more drugs. So because I tend to give triple, I find it might be complicated if there's not a strong preference. If the patient has a preference, such as a person, um, uh, they've, they've used uh, heparin, say, or they're a type 1 diabetic, or they've given needles to their kid or their dad or somebody. I say it can be by needle or pills. And if they say, what would you do? I'd say needle because it can work more effectively and maybe we'll have better retention on methotrexate. If they say, I'm not doing needles, like forget that, you're already talking me into a handful of meds. Uh, I go, that's okay. Pills are fine. So the blasphemy is that we're always told, but show me the data. We're always told that, um, uh, sub-Q is far better absorption at the higher dose. And that is true in some people, but certainly it's not. Um, we see everybody's MCV go up on average, which means they're adherent. Like my adherence test is, did you take it? Or what day did you take it? And if they look at you blank and they don't know what day they take methotrexate, that means they're not taking it. However, um, if you know they're taking it and their MCV is not going up, it doesn't have to go above normal, but virtually... Most patients, if they're on 25 milligrams of methotrexate weekly, their MCV might go from normal to high normal or high normal to above that. So it's almost like a little uh, challenge that if your MCV doesn't come up and you don't know what day you take it, then you're, you, do, you do know what day you take it. It's called no days. <laughs> That's right. I like that litmus for, uh, for adherence there. Um, so, so then to the question of absorption. Um, there, there is a little bit of evidence that maybe split dosing improves the absorption of oral methotrexate. Um, when you use oral, 
do you split dose it? Right. So where I think the data are, so the old data came out of psoriasis. So the old studies in the 1970s of methotrexate, they would give it over 72 hours to hit the cell cycle at the various phases to try to help the skin because in those days, the doses were pretty low. So what split dose does is I think it just increases your chance of having a trough that lasts longer, which might give better efficacy because you can't get a higher peak if I'm splitting it over 12 to 24, but you'll prolong that trough. So I split dose in two situations usually. So the first situation is lack of tolerability. So you feel just so sick on it. You even look at those yellow pills and you can't stand it or that yellow injection. And it just, you now like you, you've painted your house, no more yellow. You got rid of the yellow room because you can't stand it. Right. So for those people, I'll say, well, we could try whether it's oral or, or injectable. We could try if it was your Friday night special, we could go Friday a.m., Friday p.m., or more so Friday night, Saturday night, if your nausea is off in a few hours after you take it, you might sleep through that. If a person says, well, Dr. Pope, you told me that, but I get nausea exactly 12 hours after taking it. I go, perfect. Then take it at, what time do you go to bed? 10? Take it at 10 in the morning if you go to bed at 10 at night, if you're a 12-hour person. But most people aren't that precise, right? So I split it for that. And I also split it if I'm really trying to just get a little more bang for my buck. You tell me as a patient, you're flaring. I don't see much. Maybe your CRP is always a little bit above normal or used to be normal. Now it's ridden from instead of a five, it's a 10 and normal saying the lab is five or eight. And those people, I might say, I don't see much, but you're flaring a bit. You're on optimum CS, conventional synthetic DMARs. It looks like you're adherent. Your pharmacy list looks like you're filling your prescription. Why don't we just split your methotrexate and you might just get that five, 10% improvement in less flares. So I'll do it for efficacy and I'll do it for tolerability. But there are the two main reasons. I don't routinely do it because I think the more apt that we make things complicated, the more likely people forget their second dose or they just don't get it. Like it's it like non-deliberate, non-adherence. It goes with the complexity of this with food, this without food, this is AM. You can't take, of course, your calcium with your thyroid, with your PPI, with your methotrexate you can just take it if that's how you take it do it it's great just do it absolutely i i think about like um people i counsel on who i i similarly i'm starting on triple therapy and i'm i'm talking and in the back of my head i'm also thinking like this is going on and on but trying to do diligence and go through the side effects of each of these three medications the folic acid that we're also gonna that that we're gonna add on top of the methotrexate um, the prednisone you might be starting them on to to try and achieve that you know disease control early on, um, and and so I think like there's there's real truth to like the idea of like simple often is better for patients. Uh, medications dosed once a day versus four times a day, you're going to get better adherence with that once a day dosing. So uh, that's actually really helpful. Thank you. Absolutely. And I think, uh, Daniel, when you're early in practice, you think you have to tell them the risk, but people are treat being treated because of benefit, not because of risk. And the way I think about it is when you leave after your MI and you're on an ACE, a beta blocker, probably two anticoagulants of some sort, you're on a lipid lowering drug. Do you think anyone's told you about cough, hyperkalemia, renal impairment, muscle aches? Are you kidding? They say this is life prolonging and get on it, buddy. 
So I kind of adopted the cardiology approach that we're doing <laughs> yeah. this because this is like an emergency or whatever, that we can make you feel a lot better in the short term, the medium and the long term, hopefully preserve function, right? I don't promise cure or anything like that. But in general, we should be able to make your disease a lot better. And here's the steps you need. And we try. I And I always... Um, and if I had a proper EMR, I would print it, but I always write out their day. Um, if there's a problem, call sulfasalazine. Again, I used to go 500 BID. I just go one gram a day. It's easier. And then if you're on three grams, probably you're not going to take six pills at once. So then maybe you go three pills AM, three pills um, PM. But I, I, it's just the less complicated is easier. I let them choose their day so they get that it's the day. And you did bring up folic acid. And I just have little mini blood boiling because the reason I use folic acid is so pharmacists don't fax me. Again, if you eat everything pretty much of food that it's not just green things that have folate cereal so many things have folic acid added it would be very difficult in canada if you eat not if you're starving in the hospital they keep taking your tray away right but if you're eating it's hard to be low on folate so i couldn't care less about folic acid but again because it's a shout out to ottawa uh, peter tugwell and others they did do the systematic review of folic acid and what folic acid did in methotrexate trials first of all the dose was anything and everything. One milligram, six or seven days a week, five milligrams once a week, five milligrams, six days a week, folinic acid, which costs a fortune and is hard to get, 50 milligrams or 25 or 10 milligrams once a week. So the trials were inconsistent. But all they found, which is important, they found, which this is important, I'm going to tell you, there was only two things that folic acid seemed to do. And it took multiple little trials to find this, by the way. It wasn't any game changer trial. It made no difference on each trial. But systematic reviewing the durability of methotrexate might have been slightly longer that's a good one so less dropout and shockingly slightly less transaminitis not oral ulcers not nausea not cytopenias go figure not macrocytosis so there you go so so I don't mind people taking it, but I just write the script so people are off my back. <laughs> Five milligrams once a week, the day after methotrexate. And if you don't take it, I don't care. But here's your script. So I did my due diligence. So folic acid for uh, Janet Pope's benefit. Yes, right. Well, right. For my benefit, but the pharmacist <laughs> won't bother me. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you think that there's any evidence for hair loss with folic acid or folinic acid? Well, there isn't any evidence, but folinic acid, I mean, it is used, uh, it's leucovorin, right? So it's the challenge, uh, the the bailout, if someone gets their um, IV, intrathecal, whatever, methotrexate for the leukemics and things like that, uh, leucovorin does help when you have terrible mucositis and severe cytopenias. Um, but on, on folic acid, I have yet to see any data. And it certainly, unfortunately, doesn't help nausea. And we might come up with the other side effects. But I, I have found that it does pretty much nothing. And for patients who don't take it, the trainees are always, oh, Dr. Pope, they're on like volume four of your old fashioned medical records and you don't have them on folate. I go, yeah. And are, do they have any problems? No. Are their blood counts okay? Yeah. And I go, so I rest my case. Yeah. <laughs> so the resident thought they caught you. They're like, they did. Oh, I, have, I have something I can help you with. Right. Yeah. But thank you, resident. They, are, they are trying to help. They're, you know, so they are. To a couple of those side effects. So like the brain fog, the, um, you know, the memory component, maybe the nausea too. 
um, I'd have to to check back in in his uh, podcast. But Jack Cush talks a lot about dextromethorphan vitamin A, and I'm I'm wondering if you have any comments on those at all, or no comment. Well, I've heard Jack's lectures, and so for a while I tried cough syrup with DM, and he he got those data, I think, from the kitties that were on multiple uh, treatment for leukemia, and DM did some kind of change in binding with polyglutamates in the brain, and polyglutamates are the, the breakdown product of uh, methotrexate, so it all kind of made really good sense to me, and it kind of snows some people too, so if they take it, they might just go to sleep, but it doesn't have to snow you, but DM can. Um, because um, it's a cough suppressant that can sedate. Um, so I tried it for about a year or two, and I can't say I had much success. And people would come back not on it. So that was probably my first clue that either they never took it anyway, didn't take my advice, or it didn't help them. For vitamin A, I looked at Jack, some of Jack's uh, lecture and how much vitamin A, which is quite a high dose, by the way. And I haven't seen it help. And I don't understand how it would, but that doesn't matter. If it worked, I'd be happy to use it. Uh, Carter and others, so Carter Thorne and Diane Tian and others um, in right. Newmarket, but other places have looked at um, B12. So again, we have to think folic acid is a B vitamin, B12 is a different one, but they've tried um, IM or sub-Q that the patient administers B12 the day before every um, methotrexate. And I've tried oral and parenteral B12, and I haven't been too impressed. And I have also then sort of said, well, okay, you're in remission, say, and you really, it's the rate limiting step is three days of I don't feel good. We know it's the metabolites of methotrexate, which also have some efficacy. They're not inert. They have some efficacy, um, but they also have more side effects potentially. So I'll say, okay, do you want to be sick every week or every other week? And that's an easy question. They go, Dr. Pope, not at all. But if you have to, if it's only a multiple choice of two questions every other week, I go, well, then instead of going down to half dose of methotrexate weekly, why don't we do 25 milligrams every other week? And I got the data based on some little trial that I forget. It's a long time ago. I forget if it's RA or PSA, but I kind of think it's PSA. They looked at Patients in remission, which in the olden days meant zero swollen joints because we weren't very holistic out of everything else, but patients doing great on their methotrexate and they randomized them to, I think it was psoriatic arthritis, to stay on your weekly methotrexate or go to every other week. And although a few more people proportionately flared on every other week, most didn't. And so if I had side effects and I could get to every other week of methotrexate, I would much rather be sick on um every other Friday or day one and 15 of every month, however I was going to do it. Cause day one and 15 is a bargaining chip, right? Then you're only taking, um, you're taking uh, 12 times two, 24 doses and in 20 right. instead of 26 in the year. So if you want that too, I'll bargain with you that way. Cause we don't, I can't say day 30 or they get rid of uh, February <laughs> as well. <laughs> okay. That that's really fascinating. I like that. I like that. Sometimes what you're doing is posing, um, questions or information in the form of a would you rather and you try and make it a would you rather that's easy like would you rather a thousand bucks or a hundred bucks easy yeah like if the lawyers on trial they say they never ask the uh, question that they don't know the answer to right. i think if i'm priming a patient for two reasons i know the answer but i'm also priming them to feel because it is important to feel like they have a bit of control because if you feel sick three or four days a week. This is legit. It's that what is 
more people will stop their methotrexate, not from lack of efficacy. It's because they can't stand the look at it anymore. They can't stand to feel sick for many days a week. So if a person has a lotus of control, they're also more apt to be adherent. And I know that if I give a bit of wiggle room and say, if you're flaring, we'll then go three times a month. And you know that that one time before COVID days, that that's when you go to your son's hockey game. That's once a month that they play like the big league or whatever. They play like the big guys and you want to be there and not feel sick. That's the time you miss it. But if your kid plays hockey three times a month or four times a month and you're missing methotrexate all the time, my other pearl is drugs that you don't take actually stop working. <laughs> of course. Uh, very practical. Um, so you had alluded to a couple of, uh, of other things. And so I want to talk about when do you hold or when do you stop methotrexate? So we can maybe tick through some of these. Do you hold methotrexate for surgery? Um, I do because I don't want the surgeon bothering me, number one. So it's good for Janet, maybe not good for the patient. And number two, if I tell them what to do, then it won't be held for the next 12 months or six months. And then you find out they're really flaring on prednisone. So two decent RCTs, right. but it doesn't mirror practice of elective uh, joint replacement surgery where they didn't hold methotrexate or they did. And they had less problems if they didn't hold methotrexate. But here's the caveat. they When they did hold methotrexate, they were holding it like for three months after and stuff like that. So people flared. So we can't generalize it other than not holding methotrexate was was the safe of thing course. to do yeah. but because the surgeons and and i know they don't want wound healing and wound dehiscence and they don't read our literature of these sorts of trials in general so i hold um, so it's just, again, it's all made up. So you can do whatever you like. But I tend to say, hold one dose pre-op, one dose post-op. Um, and then when you're discharged, go back on it. Unless if you have a wound infection. I don't say when wound is healing well, because they'll go, well, it's not healed, so I can't do it. Or there's one staple they left in, so I can't restart. So one dose pre-op, one dose post-op. And that way, it doesn't matter the day. One dose pre-op, one dose post-op, then you're back as business as usual, right. and you're holding your uh, folic acid if you want. I don't care about your folate. Do whatever you like. Great. Uh, okay. Number two, um, what sort of infections make you hold or make you tell the patient to hold methotrexate? So first of all, there's lots of infections I don't even know have happened, right? So if I'm aware of someone having an infection that requires antibiotics or antivirals such as shingles, it makes me feel better. Who am I treating again? Me, not them, to hold methotrexate until their antibiotics or antivirals are gone. But if we really think people are in steady state for four half-lives and the half-life of methotrexate is far more than a day. So when you're holding, you have to realize that you probably don't make any difference, but it makes us feel better. And because I don't know if that minor cellulitis is going to go into something worse over time. So I'm holding as almost being preemptively. So that's what we do. But we right. have patients every week come in and say or on phone now that say you know oh I was on antibiotics I had pneumonia like four weeks ago oh did you hold your TNF did you hold your methotrexate or if you're on a jack no Dr. Pope you didn't tell me any of that and even if I did obviously I didn't because they're but they're the same people that say Dr. Pope you said if I didn't take this I'd be in a wheelchair I've never said that in my life <laughs> well, I can't right. say that but I'm glad you're not in a wheelchair right and I'm glad you took it <laughs> that's right okay number three is a question from a listener Hi there, this is Drew Bowie, one of the rheumatology fellows from the University of British Columbia. Here is my question for Dr. Pope. 
Do you hold methotrexate for any vaccines? And what are your thoughts on holding it for the COVID vaccine? So there there are data. And the thing is, you, you can listen to data, but sometimes, again, you have to make it easy for the patient. So I try data first, and then I just say, I think this is going to be too confusing. So the data are for viral vaccinations and for pneumococcal vaccinations. So for flu shot, a nice study out of Asia, I think it was Korean, but somewhere in Asia, they gave the flu shot and they did three arms. You didn't hold anything, so you kept your methotrexate going. One arm, you held methotrexate for one week, and one arm, you held it for two weeks. And it was like a dose response of looking at the antibody response on the regular flu shot. Holding two weeks gave a better antibody response than holding one week, which gave a better response than not holding. However, if someone flares all the time or it's already in their pill pack or um, I'm not sure they'll get it because I have people with cognitive impairment and they still need their methotrexate, I just think the path of least resistance for some people is just put your arm out, get it, and move on. When it comes to the shingles vaccine, again, the the old one was live um, to get disseminated a zoster off of um, or disseminated chickenpox uh, from Zostavax would have been very rare, but you wanted them to mount a response and it wasn't a great vaccine anyway. It wasn't all that protective. So with that, I would hold one or two weeks after um, each dose because it's zero and one to six months later, the second mm -hmm. one. Now with Shingrix, it's more effective. Uh, you can get this gamma interference surge and rarely flare your disease. And I've seen it, but very rare, maybe one RA and one lupus patient of all the patients I've had have had a cause and effect flare that was self-limited. One needed prednisone. So with a better response, do you need to hold methotrexate or not? I tend to say, take your shingles vaccination, which is your um, Shingrix, when your disease is under good control and hold your methotrexate one to two weeks after each one. And that way they can decide if they think, oh, I'm stiff and sore, well then just go back on it. So, and then the pneumococcal vaccine, there's data of adalimumab, so TNF, you don't have to hold it and you get a good response. Same with, by the way, the um, the um, viral right. uh, vaccination for shingles, you didn't have to hold the TNF. But again, there's data on the um, pneumococcal vaccination that RA patients have an attenuated response. It can still be good enough. That's the whole benchmark. We don't know what's good enough. Is a 90% response as good as a 72%? I don't know. I don't have, no one knows. And if you ask ID, they don't know either. So I uh, basically with the pneumococcal, they got a better response holding methotrexate one week versus not holding it, which brings us to COVID. So um, if they're doing really well, I say um, after your COVID shot, if you can hold your methotrexate and if you're on a jack, so methotrexate jack, for two weeks. But I have lots of people that I just have totally confused them or they're flaring, they're smoldering along. And if they take prednisone, they'll get an attenuated response too. So I say just hold one week after each dose. So I say COVID shot, hold methotrexate, restart methotrexate. Next COVID shot, hold methotrexate, restart methotrexate. So I write it out for them because if there was enough COVID vaccines around, they right. get a COVID shot three weeks later for one, four weeks later, the other. That means in five weeks, you could be off methotrexate four weeks. You're going to flare and then that's no good. And then you seek medical attention. 
So that's so I'm often saying one week for the elderly. And you could say, well, don't we really want them to get a, get a good response? Yes, but I don't want them to flare. And if you're in remission two weeks or if it's easy to remember two weeks after. And that is all so yeah. that it's made up. The whole COVID thing is based on looking at the, um, the nice little flu shot trial from Asia and looking at that you get an attenuated response continuing methotrexate for pneumococcal and for the shingle shots. Okay, that's great. Thank you. So you mentioned early on that in your patients, you're actually you don't want to know if they have a tiny little lung nodule, or a very tiny bit of ILD that's completely asymptomatic. And I wonder how you approach patients um, who are being diagnosed with ILD. And there's this question of whether whether or not this is methotrexate pneumonitis or methotrexate induced ILD, and how you kind of sort through that. So first of all, methotrexate pneumonitis is like an acute pneumonia. So it's acute, uh, often febrile, often but not always eosinophils. Inflammatory markers are sky high. And it doesn't look quite like ARDS, but it's sort of ARDS, like you got fluffies on the lung. And usually the people are sick. So it's acute. So ILD and RA, we all know methotrexate can help reduce the spread of ILD and RA, although our patients break through because methotrexate is our anchor drug and then we move on. But methotrexate does not cause chronic ILD. So the only reason you want a baseline x-ray is to know that I wonder if this person has ILD already because they're short of breath or they're a smoker or I heard some in irrelevant, and I don't know if it's atelectasis, but a few basal crackles. If you want to do an x-ray, that's really great. But that doesn't preclude, even if there's some streaking on it, it's not going to change using methotrexate. We're going to use it in that person. I guess it's just good to know if they get ILD later and respirologists want to blame it on their methotrexate when their RA diagnosis is staring us all in the face, right? So, and that's why I don't, and again, the reason I'm mostly like this, this is not in connective tissue disease and scleroderma. They're all going to get worked up because ILD is so common. But in RA, clinically relevant ILD, is probably 3%. And ILD is probably double that. So 6 to 8% will have ILD, often older, long-standing smokers, seropositive men more than women. That's who gets ILD in general. But, um, you know, a young uh, 40-year-old or something that's going to start methotrexate or any age like that, why do I want a chest x-ray? It's just one more thing that I then have to explain away some shadow that's irrelevant and causes stuff. But I also think if I were on the, that end of things, why are you making me do healthcare utilization? Like I want a cabbage when I grow up, right? right. I want something when I'm really old. <laughs> so, right. I want there to be money in the system when I have some kind of procedure that's actually indicated, or I want a joint replacement when I need it. So I just feel there's not enough money, but I was part of the RA guidelines and we are redoing them finally, which is great. And Glenn is doing a really excellent job leading us, but we did say at baseline, looking at hep status, um, HIV only if indicated, obviously looking at the function of their liver, which we really didn't mean function, we meant transaminases, looking to that we know their creatinine's okay, but we did say baseline chest x-rays. But I think there's a lot of things we do as what if, and I think it might be better time spent saying, you know, I want you to get your vaccines up to date, or you're, you're smoking and you know pharmacists can prescribe smoking cessation. There's only so many things to talk about. So saying methotrexate is pretty safe, but I need that baseline chest x-ray 
it doesn't ring true to me. However, I, again, if oh, someone yeah. does it, it's, it's pretty inexpensive. And most people, you're not yeah. doing great harm, put it that way. So kind of down the road in some of these patients, because methotrexate is such a valuable tool in our chest, when you do have a patient who has true ILD, after we've just discussed kind of what methotrexate pneumonitis actually is, do you actively avoid methotrexate in those patients or will you still use it? Uh, both. So I think it really depends. So uh, I'll give you, for instance, one of my lovely patients who was probably one of the first patients because she was on a protocol getting a TNF in Canada because she was in a research trial so long ago. Yeah. And uh, so for all those years from 97 or whenever she got her D2E7 at the time, as the young ones have to look up what that is. It's a drug on the market, I assure you. Um, when she got that drug, we had baseline chest x-rays because she was in a trial and then she was in a long-term extension. We had lots of chest x-rays and now she has, she's uh, about 70. She's had RA since her late 20s and she has severe ILD now. She was on methotrexate and a biologic for years. So I stopped the methotrexate not because it caused the ILD, it's because her lungs broke through and got ILD, so it's insufficient. And also, of course, the respirologist was down my throat, but that's another thing. So, but I stopped it because I thought it was the right thing to do. And I put her on, I stopped her um, other <laughs> drug that we talked about, and I'm putting her on rituximab, hoping that it will control the ILD because her RA, although a lot of damage has done, she had damage way back when as well. Her, her RA joints are doing great, but her lungs, I know that didn't exist. So you could say, well, there you go. You had an extra, you know, it didn't exist. But she presented short of breath, um, probably subacutely, and had new crackles. And I look back about two years before, she had a few basal crackles. And someone had done an x-ray and emerged for whatever reason, I don't know, aspiration or something. She had gone in a couple of years before. And there was very mild ILD two years ago, and now it's moderate. So, um, and again, I kept the methotrexate on two years ago because her ILD was asymptomatic. So I'm stopping it for that reason that people have broken through, but there's a nice study. There's a case control of registries out of Europe. And then there's also a nice study uh, that's published, um, I think out of France, um, both of which demonstrate, and I actually, there's one in the rheumatology, which might be um, a British study as well. They demonstrate that the incidence of ILD is less in people on methotrexate, but you could go, aha, we were afraid to use it in the people at high risk. Well, no, the people at high risk are usually at high risk for bad RA, strongly seropositive smokers, maybe nodules, um, stuff like that. So I do think that ILD can um, be treated by methotrexate or prevented, but that it's not sufficient treatment when you're on methotrexate and you get clinically relevant ILD. And in this case, I'm talking right. about RA. Janet, thank you so much. That was so great. That was really, really helpful. Um, I'm sure that listeners will will definitely, regardless of stage in their career, will will get a lot out of that. And thank you so much, Daniel. And I think now we're challenging people to disagree because I what I've given you mostly is opinion. So if you have other opinions, please let us know and record a message or um, uh, chat it to us and we will try to address it on another podcast. So thank you and thank you, Daniel. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this Ask an Expert segment of Around the Room. Upcoming segments will be about Raynaud's and the differences between inflammatory arthritis and arthralgias. 
Send us your questions on those topics to info at room.ca or via Twitter by tagging the CRA Twitter account at C-R-A-S-C-R Room. And you could be featured in an upcoming episode of Around the Room. We are produced by David McGuffin, Dr. Dax Rumsey, and Kevin Bajnoff. We would like to give a special thanks to the Communications Committee and the staff of the CRA for their hard work. If you enjoyed your time with us, please give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can also share this podcast with your colleagues and spread the word on social media. I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.